Section twenty two of a half century of conflict. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A half century of conflict by Francis Parkman. Chapter twelve, part two. Just before the arrival of the six hundred allies, Dubuisson whose orders were to keep the peace, if he could, among the western tribes, had sent Vincennes to the Huron village with a proposal that they should spare the lives of the Outagamies and Mascotans, and rest content with driving them away, to which the Hurons returned a fierce and haughty refusal. There was danger that, if vexed or thwarted, the rabble of excited savages now gathered before the fort might turn from friends into enemies, and in some burst of wild caprice lift parricidal tomahawks against their French fathers. Dubuisson saw no choice but to humour them, put himself at their head, aid them in their vengeance, and even set them on. Therefore, when they called out for admittance, he did not venture to refuse it, but threw open the gate. The savage crew poured in till the fort was full. The chiefs gathered for council on the parade, and the warriors crowded around a living wall of dusky forms, befeathered heads, savage faces, lank, snaky locks, and deep-set eyes that glittered with a devilish light. Their orator spoke briefly, but to the purpose. He declared that all present were ready to die for their French father, who had stood their friend against the bloody and perfidious Outagamies. Then he begged for food, tobacco, gunpowder, and bullets. Dubuisson, replied with equal conciseness, thanked them for their willingness to die for him, said that he would do his best to supply their wants, and promised an immediate distribution of powder and bullets, to which the whole assembly answered with yells of joy. Then the council dissolved, and the elder warriors stalked about the fort, haranguing their followers, exhorting them to fight like men and obey the orders of their father. The powder and bullets were served out, after which the whole body, white men and red, yelled the war-whoop together. A horrible cry that made the earth tremble, writes Dubuisson. An answering howl, furious and defiant, rose close at hand from the palisaded camp of the enemy. The firing began on both sides, and bullets and arrows filled the air. The French and their allies outnumbered their enemies fourfold, while the Outagamies and Mascotan warriors were encumbered with more than seven hundred women and children. Their frail defences might have been carried by assault, but the loss to the assailants must needs have been great against so brave and desperate a foe and such a mode of attack is repugnant to the Indian genius. Instead, therefore, of storming the palisaded camp, 
the allies beleaguered it with vindictive patience and wore out its defenders by a fire that ceased neither day nor night the french raised two tall scaffolds from which they overlooked the palisade and sent their shot into the midst of those within who were forced for shelter to dig holes into the ground four or five feet deep and ensconce themselves there the situation was almost hopeless but their courage did not fail they raised twelve red english blankets on poles as battle flags to show that they would fight to the death and hung others over their palisades calling out that they wished to see the whole earth red like them with blood that they had no fathers but the english and that the other tribes had better do as they did and turn their backs to onontio the great war-chief of the potawatamis now mounted to the top of one of the french scaffolds and harangued the enemy to this effect do you think you wretches that you can frighten us by hanging out those red blankets if the earth is red with blood it will be your own you talk about the english their bad advice will be your ruin they are enemies of religion and that is why the master of life punishes both them and you they are cowards and can only defend themselves by poisoning people with their fire-water which kills a man the instant he drinks it we shall soon see what you will get for listening to them this homeric dialogue between the chief combatants was stopped by de boisson who saw that it distracted the attention of the warriors and so enabled the besieged to run to the adjacent river for water the firing was resumed more fiercely than ever before night twelve of the indian allies were killed in the french fort though the enemy suffered a much greater loss one house had been left standing outside the french palisades and the outer gamies raised a scaffold behind its bullet-proof gable under cover of which they fired with great effect the french at length brought two swivels to bear upon the gable pierced it knocked down the scaffold killed some of the marksmen and scattered the rest in consternation famine and thirst were worse for the besieged than the bullets and arrows of the allies parched starving and fainting they could no longer find heart for bravado and they called out one evening from behind their defences to ask du boisson if they might come to speak with him he called together the allied chiefs and all agreed that here was an opportunity to get out of the hands of the outagamies the three ottawa women whom they held prisoners the commandant therefore told them that if they had anything to say to their father before dying they might come and say it in safety in the morning all the red blankets had disappeared and a white flag was waving over the hostile camp the great outagami chief pemusa presently came out carrying a smaller white flag and followed by two Indian slaves. Du Boisson sent his interpreter to protect him from insult, 
and conduct him to the parade, where all the allied chiefs presently met to hear him. My father, he began, I am a dead man. The sky is bright for you, and dark as night for me. Then he held out a belt of wampum, and continued, By this belt I ask you, my father, to take pity on your children, and grant us two days in which our old men may counsel together to find means of appeasing your wrath. Then, offering another belt to the assembled chiefs, this belt is to pray you to remember that you are of our kin. If you spill our blood, do not forget that it is also your own. Try to soften the heart of our father, whom we have offended so often. These two slaves are to replace some of the blood you have lost. Grant us the two days we ask, for I cannot say more till our old men have held counsel. To which de Boisson answered in the name of all, If your hearts were really changed, and you honestly accepted Onontio as your father, you would have brought back the three women who are prisoners in your hands. As you have not done so, I think that your hearts are still bad. First bring them to me, if you expect me to hear you. I have no more to say. I am but a child, replied the envoy. I will go back to my village and tell our old men what you have said. The council then broke up, and several Frenchmen conducted the chief back to his followers. Three other chiefs soon after appeared, bearing a flag and bringing the Ottawa squaws, one of whom was the wife of the war chief Saguina. Again the elders met in council on the parade, and the orator of the deputation spoke thus. My father, here are the three pieces of flesh that you ask of us. We would not eat them, lest you should be angry. Do with them what you please, for you are the master. Now we ask that you will send away the nations that are with you, so that we may seek food for our women and children, who die of hunger every day. If you are as good a father as your other children say you are, you will not refuse us this favor. But de Boisson, having gained his point and recovered the squalls, spoke to them sternly, and referred them to his Indian allies for their answer, whereupon the head chief of the Illinois, being called upon by the rest to speak in their behalf, addressed the envoys to this effect. Listen to me, you who have troubled all the earth. We see plainly that you mean only to deceive our father. If we should leave him as you wish, you would fall upon him and kill him. You are dogs who have always bitten him. You thought that we did not know all the messages you have had from the English, telling you to cut our father's throat, and then bring him into this our country. We will not leave him alone with you. We shall see who will be the master. Go back to your fort. We are going to fire at you again. 
the envoys went back with a french escort to prevent their being murdered on the way and then the firing began again the outagamies and mascotans gathered strength from desperation and sent flights of fire arrows into the fort to burn the straw-thatched houses the flames caught in many places but with the help of the indians they were extinguished though several frenchmen were wounded and there was great fright for a time but the thatch was soon stripped off and the roofs covered with deer and bear skins while mops fastened to long poles and two large wooden canoes filled with water were made ready for future need a few days after a greater peril threatened the french if the wild indian has the passions of a devil he has also the instability of a child and this is especially true when a number of incoherent tribes or bands are joined in a common enterprise dubuisson's indians became discouraged partly at the stubborn resistance of the enemy and partly at the scarcity of food some of them declared openly that they could never conquer those people that they knew them well and that they were braver than anybody else in short the french saw themselves on the point of being abandoned by their allies to a fate the most ghastly and appalling and they urged upon the commandant the necessity of escaping to michilimackinac before it was too late dubuisson appears to have met the crisis with equal resolution and address he braced the shaken nerves of his white followers by appeals to their sense of shame threats of the governor's wrath and assurances that all would yet be well then set himself to the more difficult task of holding the indian allies to their work he says that he scarcely ate or slept for four days and nights during which time he was busied without ceasing in private and separate interviews with all the young war-chiefs persuading them flattering them and stripping himself of all he had to make them presents when at last he had gained them over he called the tribes to a general council what children thus he addressed them when you are on the very point of destroying these wicked people do you think of shamefully running away how could you ever hold up your heads again all the other nations would say are these the brave warriors who deserted the french and ran like cowards and he reminded them that their enemies were already half dead with famine and that they could easily make an end of them thereby gaining great honour among the nations besides the thanks and favours of Anontio, the father of all. At this the young war-chiefs, whom he had gained over, interrupted him and cried out, My father, somebody has been lying to you. We are not cowards. We love you too much to abandon you, and we will stand by you till the last of your enemies is dead. The elder men caught the contagion and cried, come on let us show our father that those who have spoken ill of us are liars then they all raised the war-whoop 
sang the war-song, danced the war-dance, and began to fire again. Among the enemy were some Sakis, or Saks, fighting for the Outagamis, while others of their tribe were among the allies of the French. Seeing the desperate turn of affairs, they escaped from time to time, and came over to the winning side, bringing reports of the state of the beleaguered camp. They declared that sixty or eighty women and children were already dead from hunger and thirst, besides those killed by bullets and arrows, that the fire of the besiegers was so hot that the bodies could not be buried, and that the camp of the Outagamis and Muscatans was a den of infection. The end was near. The besieged savages called from their palisades to ask if they might send another deputation, and were told that they were free to do so. The chief, Pemusa, soon appeared at the gate of the fort, naked, painted from head to foot with green earth, wearing belts of wampum about his waist and others hanging from his shoulders besides a kind of crown of wampum beads on his head with him came seven women meant as a peace offering all painted and adorned with wampum three other principal chiefs followed each with a gourd rattle in his hand to the cadence of which the whole party sang and shouted at the full stretch of their lungs an invocation to the spirits for help and pity. They were conducted to the parade, where the French and the allied chiefs were already assembled, and Pemusa thus addressed them. My father and all the nations here present, I come to ask for life. It is no longer ours but yours. I bring you these seven women, who are my flesh, and whom I put at your feet to be your slaves. But do not think that I am afraid to die. It is the life of our women and children that I ask of you. He then offered six wampum belts, in token that his followers owned themselves beaten, and begged for mercy. Tell us, I pray you. These were his last words something that will lighten the hearts of my people when I go back to them. Dubuisson left the answer to his allies. The appeal of the suppliant fell on hearts of stone. The whole concourse sat in fierce and sullen silence, and the envoys read their doom in the gloomy brows that surrounded them. Eight or ten of the allied savages presently came to Dubuisson, and one of them said in a low voice, My father, we come to ask your leave to knock these four great chiefs in the head. It is they who prevent our enemies from surrendering without conditions. When they are dead, the rest will be at our mercy. Dubuisson told them that they must be drunk to propose such a thing. Remember, he said, that both you and I have given our word for their safety, if I consented to what you ask, your father at Montreal would never forgive me. Besides, you can see plainly that they and their people cannot escape you. The would-be murderers consented to bide their time, and the wretched envoys went back with their tidings of despair. 
I confess, wrote de Boisson to the governor a few days later, that I was touched with compassion, but as war and pity do not agree well together, and especially as I understood that they were hired by the English to destroy us, I abandoned them to their fate. The firing began once more, and the allied hordes howled round the camp of their victims like troops of ravenous wolves. But a surprise awaited them. Indians rarely set guards at night, and they felt sure now of their prey. It was the nineteenth day of the siege. The night closed dark and rainy, and when morning came, the enemy were gone. All among them that had strength to move had glided away through the gloom with the silence of shadows, past the camps of their sleeping enemies, and reached a point of land projecting into the river opposite the end of the Isle aux Cochons, and a few miles above the French fort. Here, knowing that they would be pursued, they barricaded themselves with trunks and branches of trees. When the astonished allies discovered their escape, they hastily followed their trail, accompanied by some of the French, led by Vincennes. In their eagerness they ran upon the barricade before seeing it, and were met by a fire that killed and wounded twenty of them. There was no alternative but to forego their revenge and abandon the field, or begin another siege. Encouraged by de Boisson, they built their wigwams on the new scene of operations, and being supplied by the French with axes, mattocks, and two swivels, they made a wall of logs opposite the barricade, from which they galled the defenders with a close and deadly fire. The Mississagas and Ojibwas, who had lately arrived, fished and hunted for the Allies, while the French furnished them with powder, ball, tobacco, Indian corn, and kettles. The enemy fought desperately for four days, and then, in utter exhaustion, surrendered at discretion. The women and children were divided among the victorious hordes, and adopted or enslaved. To the men no quarter was given. Our Indians amused themselves, writes Dubuisson, with shooting four or five of them every day. Here, however, another surprise awaited the conquerors and abridged their recreation, for about a hundred of these intrepid warriors contrived to make their escape, and among them was the great war-chief Pemusa. The outer gamies were crippled, but not disabled, for but a part of the tribe was involved in this bloody affair. The rest were wrought to fury by the fate of their kinsmen, and for many years they remained thorns in the sides of the French. There is a disposition to assume that events like that, just recounted, were a consequence of the contact of white men with red. But the primitive Indian was quite able to enact such tragedies without the help of Europeans. Before French or English influence had been felt in the interior of the continent, a great part of North America was the frequent witness of scenes still more lurid in colouring 
and on a larger scale of horror in the first half of the seventeenth century the whole country from lake superior to the tennessee and from the alleghanies to the mississippi was ravaged by wars of extermination in which tribes large and powerful by indian standards perished dwindled into feeble remnants or were absorbed by other tribes and vanished from sight french pioneers were sometimes involved in the carnage but neither they nor other europeans were answerable for it end of section twenty two